So as I reflected on this, this whole week, uh, the question was uh, given to me, and that is, have you ever assumed the Bible said one thing only to find out it said something different? And, and if so, what, what's an example of that for you? Where you assumed it said one thing, you thought it meant one thing, come to find out, yeah, story of my life, right? Yeah, what, what, what comes to mind? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Yeah. Is that in the Bible? I think that's in the Bible. But it sounds like it, right? Yeah. Number eight. Yeah. People say they Right. It kind of reminds me of the dynamic of, you know, like like um, Moses delivers the Torah, the Hebrew law with I mean, it's, there's some um, there's a good number of laws in the Hebrew Bible. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, uh, Pharisees have added custom on top of custom on top of custom, some of which digress or are taken completely different directions some of the heart of that Torah, the law, and some of what Jesus is doing is like poking at that, like, hey, I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And maybe maybe the law is meant to serve us and be for our good and not the other way around. Anyway, that same kind of, it can kind of build on itself. Yeah. Other thoughts or ideas? Miles? You know, one that I had that philosophical meaning, but I always grew up believing that Jesus or God and usually that changed Saul's name to Paul. That he changed his name and said, I'm changing your name and started mission. Turns out that's just that. <laughs> <laughs> it may just be a yeah, it may just be a stylistic shift that probably the Hebrew and then you're calling him Saul because that's how you said that name in Hebrew and the Greek called him Paul and so when Paul started his mission to the Greeks, they just naturally started referring to him by his Greek name. Yeah. On the road to Damascus, the Lord said, And now your name shall be Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is really problematic theologically because then for several chapters after they still call install. Yep. <laughs> so either they were still at odds. Struggling to take off the old self and put on the new self. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Very good. Um, so the reason this question emerged for me this week is because uh, it was my experience preparing for preaching. 
uh, as it has been many times. And in some ways, this is, you know, I've studied the Bible for many, many years, as many of you have. And this is, this is uh, the way that I've learned the Bible, is to confront my assumptions about it and find out a lot of times uh, what I thought, well, uh, there's something different there. Uh, or may- maybe what I thought was incomplete and there was more to it if it had to do with, with uh, the end of the world and the resurrection and restoration of all things or, or the nature of law and grace or, or God being at work in the whole world. Uh, among people outside of Israel and not just in Israel, parts of the Bible that, oh, I didn't know that was in there. And that was my experience this week with this text in Ephesians. And when you're preaching, you have a choice to make. You can either make it fit, right? Okay, I'm, I'm just going to tailor this to kind of serve my purposes here. Uh-huh, right. Uh, or you can adapt. You can... You can uh, you can come under the text and, and receive the text. The latter is definitely the less co- convenient option. Uh, but I think it probably most times it's the better option. It's the more honest option. I think it's the way that God speaks to us a lot is to confront some of our assumptions. So we're starting a new series this week for Epiphany, the season of Epiphany called Preach What We Practice. Uh, epiphany is a word... Uh, that means revelation or revealing. And it, it refers to like the baptism text of Jesus where Jesus is re- revealed in his baptism as the beloved one of God. That Jesus is revealed as the, the son of God, the fullness of deity, the Messiah to bring God's kingdom and peace into the world. Uh, it's, and really, Epiphany is a great transition from our Advent series where we talked about mystery, the mystery of waiting, the mystery of incarnation. And now we have the season of Epiphany, the season of revelation about God. Uh, Ephesians 3, the text that Lauren read so well and with minimal accent, um, re- it recurs in the lectionary every year. I think on this very Sunday, uh, because of its language about mystery and revelation. In, in fact, I used this text in my message last February. Uh, I recalled in preparation because I was preaching about the story of God. We did a story of God conversation. And I, I referenced as I was talking about the story of the church coming to life in Acts. And I thought this Ephesians 3 text would be great for conversation about our core practices as a church. Uh, because in verse 10, for instance, it talks about how the church makes known... The wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. If you look at the church, you see the wisdom of God. The church's practice, the way that we live our lives out together as a reconciled community, embodies the wisdom and revelation of God. But that's not exactly what it says. Uh, And I was confronted with that. So let me zoom out. And set the stage for the reveal or the epiphany that I have. Shall I? Um, Starting in verse 1. If you want to follow along, I think we're all digital this morning. I'm going to be referring to this text in Ephesians 3, 1 through 12 particularly. And maybe hovering a little bit around what comes before and what comes after. So Paul starts here and says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Now, while I'm at it, 
Uh, speaking of me being a prisoner of Jesus Christ and, and proclaiming all this for the sake of you Gentiles, have I told you guys about the nature of my calling? Paul is uh, he's trying to say a prayer, but he gets interrupted. He gets distracted. And the prayer will come later. We'll see. Uh, but I, I, I don't know if I'd never noticed this before. But this really, this whole section is an interruption. It's a digression from what Paul was intending to say. Because he, he got distracted thinking, okay, this letter is going to get circulated among a bunch of churches in western Turkey, Asia Minor at the time. And a lot of these people don't know who I am. And so I should probably give them some context for why I'm saying some of these outlandish things about uh, the Gentiles. So he interrupts himself. He, it reminds me of a, uh, one of my friends named John, who was uh, a liaison for us at a partnering church in our early days in starting Storyline. He's a great man. He's a brilliant theologian. Uh, and he uh, had a, like a traumatic brain injury when he was younger and had something removed from his brain. And he blames that on his inability to have a conversation that is linear in fashion. And so when you have a conversation with John, it's very circular. So I go into his office. Hey, let's talk about church planning. Yeah, we're wondering about church planning in Texas or California. Oh, yeah, speaking of Texas, how about the Cowboys? Yeah, the cow- and there's this guy for the Cowboys who, uh, he went to ACU. You know I went to ACU, right? That reminds me of a story about ACU. And did you know my father-in-law is a professor of spiritual formation at ACU. Oh, man, great. It's, speaking of spiritual formation, that reminds me of church planting. And like this whole, we make this whole circle. Oh, yeah, that's what we were trying to talk about immediately. Paul does that all the time when he's writing. Um, oh, yeah, you Gentiles, you know, I have this calling on a prisoner. By the way, that reminds me. Let me tell you a little bit about who I am, what my calling is, uh, before I go any further. So let me, let me take this cue from Paul and get distracted a little bit. Because the first phrase of this text is for this reason, which begs the question, what is this reason? For what reason? We don't even know what Paul is going to say yet because he gets distracted. But what's the reason that's going to lead to whatever comes later? Well, we find that in the text before. And I feel like the, the best way to get at it is just to read the verses in chapter 2 from 11 to 22 that kind of get at the reason that is inspiring Paul to get to the prayer that he's eventually going to pray. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision or Jewish folks, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, 
and peace to those who were near, Jewish folks. And for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, because of all this, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, Gentiles, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Christ Jesus himself is chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's the reason. That's the reason that is inspiring Paul to say what he's about to say. That God is reconciling humanity to God's self and to each other in Christ. Uh, A British theologian, John Stott, says this really well. He says that the gospel or the mystery that Paul is about to talk about is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through their union of each with Christ. So union with each other that's made possible through their each of their union with Christ. Paul's emphasis on the gospel in this text or what he calls the mystery in chapter 3 is decidedly social and horizontal. It's about our relationships with each other, which is much needed in a time of church shootings like the one that happened during communion in a West Fort Worth church a couple of weeks ago, in a time where there's chaos at our southern border with asylees and refugees, in a time where there's political and ideological polarization and division, in a time where there are heightened racial tensions between black and white communities over police brutality and mass incarceration, over a time where war is being waged in the broader global world. Speaking of that, I was at my son's B-team basketball game on Thursday night. So, <laughs> basketball player came in the room as I was saying that. Behind me, there were two 7th grade dads. And I couldn't help, it was right before the game started, I couldn't help but to overhear them talking and one asked the other hey what do, you, what do you think about all this stuff that's going on in Iran and and if you haven't followed the news this week sometimes I don't um, uh, Trump and the administration or commander in chief ordered a preemptive strike of sorts and killed a major general of Iran uh, and the reason was they thought he planned to attack a number of U.S. embassies on foreign soil. And so they took the initiative to take him out in a drone strike. Uh, they also tried to take an out, uh, out another top official in Yemen, but were unsuccessful and unable to do that for some reason. And so this causes all kinds of hubbub in the Middle East. Iran fires missiles on a U.S. base and destroys a bunch, a, a bunch of buildings. No casualties. Fortunately, but it raises this conversation about war and what are the president's powers. You know, you, it only it stokes the ideological division and flames that are current in our politics. So that's the context. And there, I, I don't know exactly what they're hearing, but at one point I hear the dad say, uh, one dad say to the other, "Well, you know, I, 
I think it's kind of clear. Like, we're the good guys. And they're the bad guys. And so, what justification do you need other than that? And it occurred to me, as I was reflecting on that exchange behind me in the stands, that that is exactly the wall of hostility that Jesus is trying to destroy through the cross. The wall that says it's us and them. It's the good guys and the bad guys. The gospel says we're all the bad guys. And we need to be reconciled to God so that we can be reconciled to each other. So there is this, this vertical element of Paul's gospel. Um, it's not just social and horizontal. It's the vertical. It is the connection to God that sources the horizontal. Uh, as John Stott said again, the gospel is the complete union of these people who are at odds with each other through the union of each with Christ. It is our union with God that makes possible our union with each other when we're at odds. So for that reason, God making a new humanity, reconciling all to God and thus to each other through Christ, for that reason, Paul, a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles, for that reason, wait a second, y'all know about Paul's special calling to the Gentiles, right? Can we talk about that? Well, let me tell you about it. Did y'all see what I did there? Uh, in short, Paul persecuted the early church. He had a life-changing vision on his way to Damascus, where Paul beca- Saul became Paul, right? Uh, in, in Syria, speaking of war-torn countries, where he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord... Jesus in his glory, and he was blinded by the brilliance. He spent many days with a man named Ananias, being taught and instructed and discipled in the way of Jesus. And then he was baptized into Christ. And he says it was like scales fell from his eyes. He received his sight, and he had this clear calling that he then had to share the message of Christ with the outsiders, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish folks. And that's why Paul would say he's less than the least of all God's people. Because in his former life, he was trying to snuff this thing out. That was the mystery revealed to Paul, as verse 6 says in chapter 3. That Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, And sharers together in the promise of Christ. But let us stop you right there, Paul. Um, What's so mysterious about that? That the Gentiles would eventually share together in the promises of the people of God. Couldn't we have surmised that from Genesis 12? Where God says to Abram, I'm going to bless your whole family. And through you, all the nations of the world... Will be blessed. Couldn't we surmise that from that Isaiah 42 text that we read that talked about how the Messiah would bring justice to all the nations and how how Israel would and this servant, this Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles so that their eyes could be opened and they could be delivered from the darkness they were in. It was an expectation in the Hebrew Bible in so many places that the Gentiles would be a part of the thing, God's promises, the plan, salvation, God's restorative work. 
So what's the mystery? I think the mystery has something to do with Paul's phrase in verse 6. Through the gospel. Paul says, through the gospel. Gentiles are heirs together, members together, sharers together. Through the gospel. Namely, that through the death of Christ on the cross, this happens. That was the radical surprise. That God would do this. That would do this great act of reconciliation through the death of God. The mystery was not simply the inclusion of the rest of the world, but the manner by which God did it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls it scandalous and apparent foolishness. And and in our day, when uh, the leader of this country is talking about bringing peace through strength, it's scandalous. It's foolishness to suggest that no, peace comes through death. Peace comes through suffering. Peace comes through self-giving sacrifice. Peace comes through God absorbing all of this mess and making it right and healing it. Now we're drawing close to my epiphany. I can just tell you're just on the edge of your seat waiting. What is this epiphany? This mystery had been hidden until now. When God's intent was that through the church, the multifaceted, multicolored, variegated, rich variety, manifold wisdom of God, the wisdom of the gospel and this mystery of inclusion and reconciliation, this wisdom would be made known to heavenly rulers and authorities. Ostensibly because... Those heavenly rulers and authority were in conflict with themselves and needed reconciliation themselves as well. Here's what I missed in my cursory, cursory reading and, and uh, development of this text for a conversation series about our core, practice, core practices. I missed the phrase, should be made known. His intent was that now the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. That's like a, it's a passive tense. Somebody is making it known. Who is making the wisdom known? My assumption was that it was the church that makes the wisdom of God known. But is it the church? No. It is not the church that makes the wisdom of God known. Through the church is the phrase... The church is the vessel. The church is the vehicle, the instrument, the jar of clay, but not the deliverer. God is the one who makes this wisdom. No, God does it. It's not the church on its best behavior doing it, manifesting the wisdom of God to the world. It's God who is making the wisdom of God. No, that is a subtle but important distinction to be made. Peter O'Brien, an Australian biblical scholar, asserts that this manifestation of wisdom is decidedly not, as I had assumed, an activity of the church. It's not the evangelism we do. It's not the social action we do. It's not the hospitality and presence with people. It's not the justice activist work that we do in the city. 
There goes the basis for my core practices series. <laughs> Rather, it is the very existence of this new multiracial community in which Jew and Gentile have been brought together in unity, which God has created through the cross of Christ. That is the manifestation of God's richly diverse wisdom. The church is simply God's pilot project for the future reconciled world. And if you don't believe that, that it exists, uh, and that we don't necessarily have to, to work for that, let me, let me call your attention to my experience every Sunday when we meet at the Wyndham uh, at 635 in Coit. And how there are, in our little corridor alone, at least three churches right around us. And in that building, there may be as many as a dozen churches that are meeting on any given Sunday. And uh, I don't feel this kind of permission or boldness in many other places in my life. But because I know that the people in these other rooms are Jesus people, I go with some sort of confidence and joy um, into the rooms before our worship gathering. And I introduce myself and I say, hi, I'm Charles. And I am a part of the Storyline Church that's meeting over here. And I just wanted to say hi and wish you the best. And, and just know that I hope your congregation is blessed and that you guys have a fruitful day today. Uh, and, and to know that there's, I, there are African churches that are, that are meeting. And, and I can hear through the walls uh, whether it's, uh, there's some kind of tongue speaking going on. It might be, it, maybe it's African tongues or ecstatic utterances. Um, there are all kinds of different expressions of the body of Christ that are present, even in that building. And as I zoom out and I think about, I know a Burmese church that meets in Vickery, and I know of an Ethiopian church that meets in Northeast Dallas, and there are there's a massive Latino uh, Catholic church downtown. I mean, there's, there's such multifaceted wisdom that's being expressed through all of these churches. And don't get me wrong. And this is, a, this is another Pauline digression. Don't get me wrong. It is true, and it's a problem, that Sundays are still very segregated. And there's so much disconnect between uh, different uh, cultural groups that are in ethnic groups and racial groups that are represented in all of the various churches in Dallas. And there are some black liberation theologians who think, um, and I, I see the sense in it, this is the digression, that um, there's some protection for communities of color from the power-mongering dynamic of white supremacy when that happens. And so it, long term, it's not, a, it's not the kingdom of God. It's not what we want. But also, uh, there's some utility in the segregation that occurs because it allows these diverse cultural expressions to occur in our city. All right, set that to the side. I can have a conversation with you about that later. But just the diversity that's present in our city. And to think that all of these folks are our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is all happening just in Dallas County. That, that is something that was accomplished through this wall-destroying 
gospel act of the death of Jesus on the cross. This radical moment that, that explodes the diversity of the church in some amazing ways. Uh, we're all reconciled to God together in Christ. Imagine the resources and the possibility that's there spiritually for reconciling to one another across our cultural difference. Back to the distinction between God doing it and us doing it. God's sufficiency versus self or church sufficiency. This distinction is so important for us in our self-made, self-sufficient, bootstrapping, individualist, you-can-do-it American culture. Because instead of calling us first to work hard at it, work hard. Manifest the wisdom of God. Get it done. Strive for justice and reconciliation. Instead of that, it first calls us, God calls us to receive, to depend, to trust, to rest. We don't have to do it in ourselves because God has already done it. God is currently doing it. We simply must live out of that reality. And this practice, I'm convinced... This practice of receiving and depending and trusting is our most fundamental practice as a community in the world. I think this is why on the heels of verse 10 and verse 12, Paul says that in Christ and through faith, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. Because that is the source of our work and our participation with God in the world. Our connection our dependence on God. And what a, uh, what a massive privilege and gift it is to have this kind of connection with God, the, gra- the, the loving ground of the entire universe. Why wouldn't we want to avail ourselves of that? I read this. What my professor from... Uh, oh, where'd you go? There we go. My professor from Northern, where I'm in school right now, had a post yesterday that connects to this God-sufficiency, self-sufficiency shift. And he says, To believe Jesus is God fundamentally changes the way we enter the world for His justice. For if He sits at the right hand... Ruling as Lord God, active and present in the world through His Spirit, as a member of the triune God, Jesus is the agent of justice. And we are participants. We can be patient, confident, nonviolent, persevering. If, on the other hand, Jesus is just an example, uh, an authoritative uh, teacher that we should follow, and that's it. It's now on us to put into action his words. We become impatient, acting to control and coercive. This is why the divinity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, and eschatology in big words, make all the difference for we Christians who work for justice. That's a shift. When Jesus is Lord, and when all of this justice is happening through what Jesus is doing and has done through the cross and the resurrection... It changes our posture. Uh, We don't have to control or coerce. We don't have to be impatient. We don't have to bootstrap it. We simply get to participate and pay attention and step into what Jesus is already doing. So, how is this epiphany 
striking you this morning, this shift from self, self-sufficiency, church sufficiency to God sufficiency? Um, in what ways are you being invited to enter into that shift in your own life? Yes, absolutely. It's it's not the wisdom of God that the church is this uh, this amazing witness and force for good. Though, as a church leader, I aspire for that to be the case. That the wisdom of God is that God loves this motley crew of us, and and despite our warpness and brokenness, and God loves all of us deeply, uh, and that He loves the whole world. He, he loves the church. And the rest of the world, all this, like, like that he's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not that we have it all together. I mean, it, it, it changes the emphasis, right? Yeah. Yep. Now it's not my responsibility to it's us and them to you know maybe not knock them all out, but either Jesus or hell, you know, and that's just the way it goes. And I think my evolution as a believer has come to, like you said, that that epiphany is is not my responsibility mm. to um, to preach to you. Like if you're sitting before me and you tell me your brokenness, I feel like it's my responsibility to love you in it. Mm-hmm. You know, not to pull out my big portion of the Bible and hit you over the head with it and give you like the scriptures, but just to be an ear. Mm-hmm. You know, to be an ear, to listen. And I think Martila at 19 felt like, because I was taught 
that if you don't tell them the truth, the blood will be in your hand. Mm-hmm. That's what I was taught. And so you take that opportunity and you tell them you're going to go to hell for that, or that is sinful, or if you die today, what is going to happen to you? And where today, that's not my responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know? And just to love you in whatever that brokenness is, and if you ask for truth, if I feel led to share truth in a compassionate way, mm-hmm. but not cause you to walk away feeling like, you know, you make that choice today, you're going to help. You know, mm-hmm. that's not my responsibility. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. My work is to infuse you and envelop you in His love yeah. in the best way that I can. That's, I think, when I think about what you shared, that's not my responsibility yeah. to get you saved. And then I get a notch on my belt. Right. You know, how many people did you bring into the kingdom this week? You know? And it, it strikes me that, that that sounds more like the truth than the truth that God is out to get you and you're facing judgment for your pagan evil ways or whatever. Like, uh, I mean, if you're to share the truth, if the truth is that uh, God wants those who are far away to be drawn near, um, that's a different. That's a different kind of. It changes the way we participate. Like you're saying, like your your response is shaped by the truth that God loves the whole world with this expansive, self-giving, self-emptying love, and you're demonstrating that by uh, the truth is not that God is out to get everybody. The truth is that God wants to. God is reconciling the whole world to Himself in in Christ. I think that to me that's the biggest in that sharing are you aware of your own brokenness yeah you know because if you're not then you think yeah I'm not that good. I'm up yeah. here and you're down I'm here I'm good yeah. and I need to bring you into the goodness yeah you know no I'm broken and you're sharing your brokenness yeah broken together you know right That's well in, certain, in my initial reading of this text kind of can set that up where I'm saying oh yeah church is the wisdom of God we share the wisdom. We make known the wisdom. Here we are. The rest of the world, y'all look up here. You know, wisdom of God, right? No, that's not. God is making known the wisdom of God, even to us in the church. And we're, we're glad recipients of it. And, we, and we're on the same level of brokenness and need as everyone. Yeah. Wow. Which, by the way, that pivot, seeing things that way, feels like good news. Mm-hmm. Right on. It's like Val said last week, it's like running down the hallway and yelling, there is no test. that you thought you were responsible for, that somehow I, as a broken and messed up 31-year-old, have the eternal salvation of people's souls is on my ledger, and my responsibility yeah. is overwhelming. Yeah. But if my job is to sit in my brokenness and share that with others, and to experience
not strapping your bootstraps, not, you know. And I remember you saying, like, why are you being so emotional as you're talking about this? And I'm like, because it's so free. Yeah. It's just freedom. Because I think <laughs> I did feel that it was my responsibility. Am I evangelizing? I would lose sleep over that. Over, am I bringing anybody to Christ? Am I, am I being a good messenger? Am I being like Paul? Am I willing to die for the gospel? Am I willing to tell people where they're wrong and where they need to change? And am I bringing them into my goodness, not God's goodness? You know, and I'm reading them into what I feel like is my goodness. And I, you know, it's just such a free, loving message, but it's a really hard one for the church to let go of its grip. Because, it, because even talking to my mom about it, she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. No. Your first question about what in the Bible is different than what you assume. There are so many verses about Jesus saving the world. Uh-huh. Jesus. Jesus literally died. Blood over everyone. All nations, all are saved. And when I said that to my mom, I was like, what if, mom? Like, what if? It, that, that's it. What if it was a period at the end of that sentence? That's kind of it. And she just could not, I mean, she just was like, that takes, you know, our responsibility out of it. And I was like, bingo, <laughs> bingo. Um, but, you know, we'll never agree on that. But it is such a message of freedom and peace, and I don't think it's a message of giving up or laziness. There's got to be a good way to share that it's not giving up, it's not not being servants, not, yes. But instead of getting out the Bible and showing their brokenness, it's washing their feet, which is exactly what Jesus did. Yes, that's right. Not just evangelism because it's like you know, there's this pressure to have perfect relationships and to be the perfect example of what a person would like. Right. And all my church relationships have to be perfect and my family relationships have to be perfect. So that like, they may know the hope. So yeah. that they may know the joy. Yeah. And it's like, that's again, you know, not God. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Right. I watched the uh, TED Talk this week from the studio of Pastor Woman who grew up in the world of Baptist. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like, so busy. And, you know, but she, uh, it's a really interesting uh, hip hop that um, she just wrote, she just wrote the book last year. But um, about, like, so she started getting on Twitter and using that as a way to, um, you know, attack people. But these people, like, befriended her mm-hmm. and, like, became, like, actually, actually listened to her and had conversations with her. And she actually started having relationships with these people and they, with like this Jewish family invited her into their house and then I mean we like just showed her actual love yeah. and, uh, and it changed life you know yeah yes she met God <laughs> in a very unexpected place yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I think Paul in this text and all, all of you are saying this so well Paul is inviting us to kind of take a step back if we think about what, what is our what is our first practice, what is our first step? Um, it is not the mission, um, in some in some sense. It is it is um, receiving the love of God for ourselves. It is it is uh, seeing ourselves down here in our need and brokenness. It is seeing it is seeing the 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 work of the cross and resurrection to reconcile us to God to show us the depths of the love of God for us and for all of humanity and simply to live out of that 
right? To, then to love the way we've been loved, which is unconditionally and without, without, um, without expectation, um, and and to and to hold the outcomes loosely to God and to be ready to talk about why we are the way we are when we are, but but taking this whole thing away, stepping back and remembering that our first call is to receive and to depend and to trust. Um, which I think is what Paul is getting at when he starts with for this reason. So to, to circle back all the way around. Um, this prayer that Paul finally gets to expresses exactly what all of you have been saying. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that's at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The word of the Lord.